Good morning. Good morning. Today I'd like to share with you some of my research and performance interests, starting with Japanese traditional dance, to reveal how it informs my ethnographic and contemporary interactive work. Over the years, I've been fascinated by how people embody artistic practices and what I'll refer to as embodied cultural knowledge. I wanted to know how dance and music is somatically transmitted in different cultures and to understand how the transmission process might illuminate cultural aesthetic priorities. After a dance lesson, my headmaster, Iemoto Tachibana Yoshie, related to me, quote, without experiencing life, without personality, you have no dance, no heart or soul, kokuro, and you are invisible. But if you have a sense of self, then you can become any character on stage, a woman, a young boy, an old man, end of quote. This flexibility of self is what I'll refer to as code switching. Her statement conceptually linked performance and the formation of a dancer's identity. Iemoto, headmaster, emphasized the notion that the ability to be flexible within the self is a sign of strength and character, a particular po- particularly poignant statement for me posed at the end of my dance lesson. Today, in introducing my work, I'll also want to reveal how the structures of shifting or code switching in dance metaphorically provide performers with a flexible self, sense of self through the transmission of embodied cultural knowledge. Transmission of dance is a particularly rich setting for observing contemporary culture in action, as well as the shaping and orienting of the body or self for artistic expression. In general, systems of transmission structure experience so that within a particular social group, the world appears similarly constructed and members know how to interact within it. I believe performance provides a special metaphoric space that often reveals how people make sense of their lives and community. Through fieldwork, ethnographers are offered a glimpse at a subculture's performance practice and techniques of the body as shared cultural knowledge. Systems for training the body often mirror the gendered, political, and spiritual connotations embodied in artistic practices. So this is um, a notation, an analysis to your right of, uh, of traditional Japanese dance, but primarily it's taught one-on-one with the, uh, with the sensei or Yamato headmaster. I began studying Japanese traditional dance, or Nihonbuyo, at the age of four in Japan. However, only through a close analysis of the transmission process 20 years later did I come to comprehend aspects of the tradition that I already knew in an embodied, intuitive way. My research lens enabled me to view and embody the duality of insider and outsider simultaneously, 
the analytic body informing the intuitive body, the intuitive body informing the analytic, until there did not seem to be a difference. A reflexive resynthesis process between these modes of knowing revealed layers of embodied cultural knowledge within the dance, the research process, and my everyday life. Japanese dance training transmits concepts of a shifting or flexible sense of self within the choreographic structures of the dance genre. Japanese dance is primarily based on a narrative. Dancers tell the story with their bodies, while a vocalist narrates the plot in song, including the voices of all the various characters. In some dance pieces, especially those drawn from kabuki, performers assume a single role for the duration of the performances. In other styles, a performer takes on multiple roles within one piece, requiring her to shift smoothly between characters in order to convey the narrative. Within a minute of dance in such pieces, a performer can move between as many as 10 contrasting characters. The embodiment of multiple roles by one performer is a structural device choreographed into a dance to convey the narrative. Through training, a performer must learn to physically articulate each persona with expressive clarity so that the individual characters appear distinct. As an example of um, code switching or shifting between characters, what I'd like to do is um, actually dance a piece for you called Kaguramen. It's a very brief dance, but what I'll need to do is introduce to you the storyline really uh, roughly, graphically, and then I'll actually perform the dance for you. What I'll need to do first is introduce the various wild and crazy characters that come out in each dance. The first in each piece, uh, each section, the first character that comes out, her name is Okame. And this is uh, a woman who is considered to be, well, she's a country bumpkin. And uh, she's, she's pretty, but she's not gorgeous. She's not this ultra-feminine character that's, that's uh, elegant in any way. She's a country bumpkin, and she works in the rice fields all day long. In, in Japan, as a folk character, you see her uh, hanging in uh, the, the mask, hanging in uh, sushi shops. She represents uh, happiness and good fortune as, as a folk character. Well... Okame is in love with this guy named Hyotoko. Hyotoko is also a country bumpkin, and he represents what is chaotic in the world. And he's a little bit crazy. For a living, he is a, is a, a metalsmith. And so he blows on the coals all day long, and so his lips are always like this in some sort of strange direction uh, like this. If you're close enough, you can see his uh, hair coming out of his nose, which is, um, you can't imagine a Japanese businessman where, with, uh, so unkempt like this. So he's a little rough in caricature. His eyes are pop-eyed. He's very rough. So he's um, very chaotic. 
He is oftentimes uh, considered to be uh, sort of the god or deity of, of fire. Well, Okame is personified uh, or embodied by uh, overdoing the feminine, uh, the feminine character. So an elegant, a very elegant kimono-clad uh, uh, character would have her feet slightly turned in. Uh, women wear, uh, have their feet slightly turned in in order to keep the kimono from flipping up. Like if the way we walk on campus is like this, it might open up the kimono and it would be uh, rather rude and crude. But uh, female characters that are elegant would have their feet slightly in and you'd have this gliding kind of movement of the feet, uh, very lovely uh, small feet patterns. Uh, Okame does have her feet turned in. However, she's a country bumpkin, so she overdoes the 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 uh, feminine uh, sort of uh, essence. So she also has her feet turned in, but a little too much. So she's pigeon-toed, and the shoulders that gently undulate with the 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 elegant character, you get this kind of uh, elegance of the shoulders going down with each foot going forward. Okame's rough, so you see this uh, going back and forth of the shoulder, and she actually kicks up the kimono, which is supposed to be very funny. She's ruining that, that beautiful aesthetic and, and elegance of the long, uh, beautiful, simple line of the female contour. So that's supposed to be very funny. Um, well, she's in love with with Hyotoko. Hyotoko assumes a male position. Uh, men basically walk the way we do across campus, uh, sort of straightforward feet like this. And as the feet go out, they're more He-Man-like characters. So the characters that I always like to portray are the He-Man characters. Of course, I'm always stereotyped as the ultra-feminine characters because I'm very, very small. Um, but Hyotoko is somewhere in between here, and his walk is like this. He does this sort of silly, comical walk. Um, Okame will come out in the beginning and she'll tell you with her, she'll tell the story with her body and she'll say, where I live there are valleys and there's mountains. And of course we're in Japan, there's waves. She shows them to you with her, with her body. And this is where I live. She has this little silly walk. She's a little bit shy, so you'll see her hiding behind her sleeves uh, a great deal. She thinks, I might see Hyotoko today, so I want to make myself look really beautiful. What can I do? She decides to put her hair up. So you see her very quickly throwing her hair down, brushing it forward, rolling it up into a bun, and popping it on her head. As if it's so easy, she goes off. Hyotoko comes out. We have a code switch. Hyotoko comes out. What should I do to make myself look handsome for Okame? I might see her today. This is going to be hard. You know how weird he looks. He decides to take his chubby cheeks off. Hmm. It's a folktale, remember. So he pulls off his chubby cheeks. He rolls them up. Then, whoops, somebody's walking by. They might catch him with this stuff. And he gets rid of it. He swallows it down. And he's off and away with his little walk. After that, we have uh, flirtatious, 
flirtatious interactions between the two of you, so, uh, between the two of them. And what I need to do is ask all of you to imagine the other character when I'm one of the characters. So, for example, um, there's one time when Okame comes out, the female character comes out, and she says, um, Oh, let's come out and play. Let's come out and play. She's teasing him. Come on, come on, let's go out and play. Well, maybe not. She's teasing him. Then he sees her a little later in the day in the rice field. Rice paddies are, are wet and muddy. You'll see him almost falling on the ground. He's teetering and tottering. And he says, come on, let's, uh, let's go out, let's go out. And she's very strong. And she nearly pulls him on the ground. He makes his own sound effect of falling down by hitting the ground like this. He changes the subject very quickly. And he says, oh, there's a folk festival going by. Let's listen to them playing on the taiko drum and playing on the hue, the flute. It's just abstracted as, as the flute playing. So between them, there's this teasing and teasing and playful, playful interaction. Uh, one more character comes out. It's a little demon, Oni. There are a lot of uh, different kinds of demons in Japanese culture. A hierarchy of demon, we, demons, we could actually say, from the garden gnome variety, perhaps to the ones that are standing outside of the gates of temples, like Asakusa Temple, that are truly horrific. If you've ever been in front of a temple and seen two-story high wooden sculptures of these demons, they're horrific. Uh, the demon that comes out, the little oni that comes out, uh, is not exactly the garden variety. He's a little bit scary, so I'd say he, he ranges up a little bit. He mostly comes out to make sure that between this very joyful, happy woman and this chaotic, harebrained uh, guy, that they'll actually go out. He's sort of overseeing. He's also making sure that there's a balance in the world between these two individuals and others in the world. One more thing, he comes out in the middle of the story to make sure that none of you are falling asleep during my performance. It's a little scary. The name of this piece is Kaguraman. I'm sorry, one more thing about this is that uh, a, a kimono jacket is worn backwards uh, to sort of tell you that something's a little off here. This is not how we wear kimono jackets, just so you know, this is backwards. Uh, this serves to blank out, in some ways, my personal identity, but also, as I, I hope you will, will see and, and, and prove that I can do this, uh, it will also uh, create a very puppet-like uh, persona for, for these three characters that, that will join us in a moment.
Just so you know, um, that dance uh, was re-choreographed for me uh, 
in the late 70s. I learned it as a child, and then I relearned it a little bit later. And um, the the uh, headmaster thought it was would be really interesting if at the end of the dance, which would never be done in Japan, you take the mask off. To ruin and shatter that illusion is something extraordinarily un-Japanese, but they re-choreographed it for me, thinking that um, it would be kind of interesting to have uh, to reveal my uh, Asian American biracial identity. They thought that was kind of fun. Oh, we'll have Tomie take the mask off at the end. So this is sort of a, a, a strange ending, but I just wanted to be uh, very clear that you wouldn't see this dance uh, this exactly this way in, in Japan. I propose that the learned ability to shift between characters in dance metaphorically mirrors a social coordination of self present in daily life in Japan, where clear delineations between men and women, various social circles, and the young and old are reflected in enculturated behavior and speech. In the past two decades, research of self in Japanese culture have received a considerable amount of attention. Social anthropologists have proposed that the flexibility of self permits Japanese to interact in a wide variety of social circles in which each social context carries strong cultural markers of morals and obligations. Identity is considered to be relational or contextually based. As Jane Bucknick explains, quote, Japanese choose appropriate behavior situationally from among a wide range of possibilities, resulting in depictions of the Japanese self as shifting or relational, end quote. A developed sensitivity to social interactions and the ability to coordinate one's path in social situations is acquired through enculturation. While conducting fieldwork in Japan, Matthews Hamabata, a Japanese-American, experienced what is referred to as tatemai, surface reality behavior, and reflected, quote, Japanese, unlike Americans, can easily accept duality in their lives. In other words, what appears on the surface may not necessarily correspond to the inner reality. Americans would tend to think that the inner reality is in some way more real and would therefore try to bring the inner to the surface. They would consider that to be honesty. Elite Japanese would see that as a sign of being ill-bred and ignorant, for the surface reality is just as real as the inner private reality, end quote. Since the 1970s, binary models have served as a strong structural foundation of theoretical discourses on selfhood both in and outside of Japan. Though the positing of dualities was an important developmental stage in the history of social research, I believe that a binary analytical frame reduces the complexity of multifaceted identities and the social roles they reflect within Japanese society. Code switching is not comparable to a light switch, an on-off toggle. Instead, I find that the subtleties of embodying such a switching process and the depth of its multiplicity reflect a profoundly complex, contextually-based way of life in Japan. At the core of Hamabata's and Bachnik's work is a focus on process-oriented nature of shifting abilities. 
revealing the cultural significance of honing and coordinating social sensitivities. Bachnick points out that shifting, quote, refers not to the content of omote in front or surface appearance and ura in back and what's kept hidden from others, but rather to a participant's ability to differentiate between them and is therefore meta-level knowledge, knowledge about knowledge, end quote. Therefore, the honing of skills and disciplines for future use rather than a gathering of material for a specific content are emphasized as an important aspect of the shifting process. The acquisition of flexible social skills enables a person to navigate easily within a variety of contexts. In daily life in Japan, the reality of code switching is clearly evident. Code switching is embodied in a variety of ways. For example, conversational style and linguistic levels of speech from the familiar to the honorific are chosen situationally, as is the vocal pitch and voice quality, manner of dress, body language, such as bowing and other social coordinations within space, and for performers and artists, the various names individuals acquire in their artistic practices. Research on code switching in linguistics and social anthropology has revealed that code switching patterns enable individuals access to a variety of social identities. In cultures where code switching is prevalent, individuals negotiate multiple frames of reference with multiple roles and role relationships within society. Carol Myers Scotton, in her analysis of verbal code switching in East Africa, notes aspects of self-definition through code switching. Quote, it's as if the switch is made to remind other participants that the speaker is a multifaceted personality, as if the speaker were saying, not only am I X, but I'm also Y. This ploy in and of itself is a powerful strategy because the speaker enlarges him or herself through marked choices in a mainly unmarked discourse, asserting a range of identities, end quote. In my experience of learning traditional dances that involve code switching, I find that focused attention to the subtleties of character portrayal and shifting is crucial in the dance studio, the process of dance transmission is sensually rich, where teachers pass down dances through oral, aural, kinesthetic, visual, and tactile methods of transmission. My headmaster draws our attention to the subtle details of each character, from carriage, gesture, gaze, facial expression, costume, to prop use. She often makes, takes a moment during our lessons to describe the character very clearly and the content of his or her or the animal's appearance. My headmaster pays particular attention to the moment of transformation between characters. Clarity in the role shift supports the narrative. She teased me and made her point clear. You can't be the male character but still have feminine feet from the last character, she said. This type of verbal instruction is often coupled with a visual and tactile cue. My teacher, acting as a kind of puppeteer, guides my body through the proper movement and pose for that character and narrative, 
In this, uh, in this photo, you can actually see her adjusting my character portrayal through visual cues and, uh, and tactile cues. When she touches me, I directly feel embodiment of specific characters, for in a way, she dances a character into my body. And, and this is an extraordinarily exhilarating experience. So this is a brief introduction to structural code-switching metaphors embodied in the style of dance that I grew up learning. As an ethnographer, I have a deep commitment to participant observation, a disciplined practice of experiencing culture firsthand in the field. Historically, this conjures images of field researchers journeying to distant lands to observe and participate in music-making. Nearly all ethnographers face issues of negotiating multiple identities in the field and at home that heighten their cross-cultural understanding and in turn affects their work. While the duality existing in my pursuits are by choice, the physical nature of my biracial identity poses an inextricably embodied duality that inherently shapes how I comprehend the world and how the world sees me. I am perceived contextually by others, an identity situated by how I sound, my attire, actions, surroundings, or the performance style I practice. These issues have surfaced through my ethnographic experiences and growing up biracial. I, I grew up with a, um, a, a Japanese mother and a, uh, a, a German-American father, uh, and I had uh, some of my childhood in Tokyo. Uh, and when I returned to New York, they had me um, taking uh, public school. I was in public school in a little town north of New York City called Pleasantville. Uh, which was primarily white uh, Westchester type of uh, community. And then on weekends, I had Japanese school in a Buddhist temple on the Upper West Side um, of, of New York. You're probably familiar with this, um, this temple. Um, and uh, this was uh, indeed an, an interesting uh, situation where I, uh, I, again, was code switching between various identities uh, through, through my... Um, transport between weekday and weekends. The juxtaposition of my weekday and weekend life marginalized, sorry, magnified my liminal Eurasian heritage. On Fridays and Sundays, metaphorically, I unzipped identities to become other in each location. In time, themes of becoming other would reemerge for me Though as a young person, I didn't see, I didn't really see how profoundly this would affect me. In hindsight, I see that both communities were important to my well-being and understanding of my mixed heritage. The survival tools I developed in my childhood, including code-switching abilities for smooth navigation between communities, wearing tattered, embroidered bell-bottom blue jeans and listening to rock and roll during the week contrasted the kimono I'd wear while dancing to Nagauta music on Saturdays. I found I could access, accept, and even enjoy this diversity of cultural expression. However, these two sides of my life never intersected, save for my corporeality. The parsing of my week starkly juxtaposed my biracial halves. 
At the time, I believe I really appreciated this compartmentalization of my identity. It was clear and separate. One thing I've been very attracted to in field work is the deep feeling of immersion in the field site. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to put this up. <laughs> this is, uh, I started studying Japanese dance when I was four. So maybe I was too embarrassed to put this up for so long. Here we go. One thing I've been very attracted to in field work is the deep feeling of immersion in the field site, the sights, sounds, taste, and feel of the site. I also do uh, field work in, at monster truck rallies uh, throughout the United States. Give you a glimpse of the field site. Ah. In contemplating my commitment to participant observation and the notion of ethnographic field sites, I became aware of the rich embodied information that my upbringing and research offered. It became increasingly clear that my body itself was the field site filled with life experiences of physical training and multiple identities. Though my embodied field site stimulated research it would also position obstacles for, before me to contend with. Several dualities run through my life. I'm biracial, a performer, researcher, a dancer, and musician. These dualities have influenced my perspective and relationship to my work. The exploration of sensate knowledge has also sparked my interactive performance collaborations with Curtis Bond collaborations where we draw directly from my enculturated movement training and vocabulary. By sensing embodied cultural knowledge electronically, we can then apply it to construct new relationships and meanings in contemporary multimedia performance. By creating characters, I've, been, I've continued to code switch in these pieces. In our collaborative dance music pieces, we create sonic characters persona defined by their visual and sonic identities. Our focus has been on the creation of a highly personal sound and movement space, idiosyncratic and deeply linked to my enculturated movement and my embodied experience. I'd like to tell you stories about several wired female characters who employ technology for their sensory immersion within virtual space. As an example, let's look at a video from one, um, from one character in the piece called Streams. As with all interactive Bon Han collaborations, the form and texture are under the complete control of the dancer as she moves. Each performance is a unique instantiation resulting from the dancer's improvisation with the computer music system. In Streams, each gesture of the dreamlike apparition recalls bodies of water, technology, a flow of information, confusion, transmission, and liquid states.
Just an overview of, of uh, this construction of, of this piece. Um, it's uh, an open form, interactive sound structure under complete control of the dancer, myself. 
Um, movement, the vocabulary is abstracted from traditional and contemporary Japanese dance forms. Um, Curtis and I observe, record, and analyze my dance movement for these pieces. We design custom physical interfaces to capture my specific movement vocabulary, audition sounds and movements, map selected sounds and sound parameters to the dance, compose the sonic geography of her body. And we live with the interface, tuning it dynamically as the piece develops. Here's the basic uh, technical setup where um, I'm, I'm wearing um, my controller's hands sensors. Uh, the data from my gestures are uh, radioed to um, a music system and amplified throughout the room. Here's the interface, as simple as it is. Captures uh, gesture and touch. Our sonic palette. The gestural interface allows complete navigation and control over a basic sonic palette, including flute and wind chime physical models from Percolate, Perry Cook's physical modeling toolkit ported to Max MSP by Dan Truman and Luke Dubois, a vocal formant filter model, playback and processing of recorded text, digital signaling processing, including various delay and granular synthesis designs. The most interesting and intensive aspects of our collaborative process involve mapping relationships between gesture and the sonic result. Values from the sensors are tuned, scaled, and mapped into a desired range for particular sound movement relationships. Overlapping and contra contrary mappings are applied to multiple instruments or sonic algorithms. As interface com complexity grows, the composition reaches a point of transformation where control and navigation must be embodied. So here's the simple, uh, the simple mapping. So we can hear, for example, uh, the, the water. I have control of the, the water with uh, different axis of the hand. Then I have uh, speech formant filters in the right hand. Then wind. We can look at this and, and see I have control over the wind. Chance articulation of text, the voices, which are all my voice uh, sampled and, and brought in. Then I have a process, the scrubber, over that, over all of these various uh, sound uh, worlds that come in. Then, think of all of those on top of each other or at the same time. Uh, multiple overlapping parameters quickly become uh, too complex to consciously control and the interface must be embodied. In other words, I'm not specifically consciously in just my, my head saying, now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that, but rather it's embodied. My body, my, my hands and my, my motions, I start to to become so fluid with the interface after living it, uh, living with it or in it for a period of time where uh, the control is, is more rapid and, and, uh, and direct. So we've arrived. In tomorrow evening's concert, one of my favorite, one of our favorite characters, Pika Pika, will appear. 
She's a character influenced by anime and manga, Japanese pop animation, and comics. Pika Pika embodies movements also from bundaku puppet theater, a movement vocabulary that I studied while learning Japanese traditional dance pieces derived from the puppet theater. Uh, Pika Pika in Japanese means sort of twinkling or shining, but it's also a metaphor for the atom bomb. So there's some uh, sort of fun things to toy with there. Um, the concept of the sonic punctuation of Pika Pika's movements is drawn directly from uh, the Bundaku musical tr tradition, though the actual sounds derive from machines. Uh, in Bundaku, all the sound effects, all the articulations of the characters' movements are, are made by off-stage uh, sound effects guys who are banging on the floor or using musical instruments to articulate the body movements. Uh, Pika Pika dons a wireless interactive dance system we call Speeper, or the sensor speaker performer created by Curtis. Speeper naturally locates and spatializes electronic sounds to emanate from the speakers mounted on her body. As Pika Pika moves, her gestural information is sent by radio to an interactive computer music system. The sounds are then broadcast back to her body, creating a new audio alias for her character, what Curtis and I call a sonic mask. Uh, Pika Pika, here are the, the speakers you can see mounted on the body. You can see the full interface uh, here, the backpack. Now Pika Pika can stroll through the audience, making her clank sounds, clankety-clank sounds. Uh, interactive video inserts Pika Pika into the animation now. Here we go. We have a commitment to living with these characters, growing with them, and developing them over many years. Each performance is a different exploration of the sonic and movement potentials. Uh, the next video was shot this past summer uh, and soon to be released on a DVD by Deep Listening Publications label. Oops, here's the animation. I'm sorry, I skipped something because um, there's another video that shows you Pika animated.
the DVD. The recent we can compare. Oops, sorry. Hmm. That's interesting. It didn't play right off. Oh, I know why. Yep. It does.
Topeka is a character that straddles several theoretical lines. She's a haraway cyborg of the integrated circuit, a cyberfemme, a Judith Butler gender trouble girl, and a gammon and McKinnon female fetishist. Let me explain. In Gender Trouble, Butler speaks to the construction of gender and meaning through performance, quote, Consider gender, for instance, as a corporeal style, an act, as it were, which is both intentional and performative, where performative suggests a dramatic and contingent construction of meaning, end quote. Pika Pika, at once a dramatic act, also breathes corporeality as an embodiment of my own experiences mapped through her circuits, her desires, her pleasure. This newfound body essentializes a liberating construct of femininity that Haraway affirms in a cyborg manifesto, quote, our bodies ourselves, bodies are maps of power and identity, intense pleasure in skill, machine skill, ceases to be a sin, but an aspect of embodiment. We can be responsible for machines, they do not dominate or threaten us. We are responsible for boundaries. They are we, and we are they, end quote. In female fetishism, Gaman and McKinnon question stereotypes of female passivity, acknowledge women have fetishes, and identify three categories, anthropological, commodity, and sexual fetishism. Pika Pika, while she does not does take pleasure in her sensuality, thrives on the power of technology by creating and embodying her sound and visual world, controlling tools rather than having them dominate her and being downright noisy. That's, quote, female commodity fetishism. There's a thrill of being out of control and being in control, both perceived in the past as a dangerous space for women, Mary Russo proposes, quote, making a spectacle out of oneself seems to be a specifically feminine danger, end quote. And, quote, carnival and the carnivalesque suggest a redeployment or counterproduction of culture, knowledge, and pleasure, end quote. Gammon and Marshmont in The Female Gaze offer that, quote, popular culture is a site of struggle where meanings are determined and debated. It can also be seen as a site where meanings are contested and where dominant ideologies can be disturbed, end quote. So the challenge is, can we create a pop figure which is drawn from a female gaze, a strong female character who is not situated within a narrative starring a male role and who appears solo with no specific narrative and simply showcases her pleasures with technological dexterity. Gaman and McKinnon state, quote, all types of fetishism share the act of disavowal, end quote. Denied tools? Curtis and I have placed them back in the hands of Pika Pika, who broadcasts her defiant ability to wield them with the utmost pleasure. Heralded by Haraway, a number of feminists point out technology's liberating effects. Haraway proposes that, quote, cyborg imagery can suggest a way out of the maze of dualisms in which we have explained our bodies and our tools to ourselves. 
It means both building and destroying machines, identities, categories, relationships, space stories. Though both are bound in the spiral dance, I would rather be a cyborg than a goddess, end quote. For me personally, theory fuses with practice. When I'm moving, dance and music become intertwined. I'm unsure whether I'm dancing the music or whether music is creating the dance. Musician, dancer, researcher, performer dualities collapse. Pika Pika breaks down numerous dualities in myself, self-other, male-female, machine body, culture-nature, and my own East-West biracial identity. Pika Pika, transgressing these dualities, constructs her own sense of self. She embodies one of my own inner selves, and through her, I have the opportunity to become a heroine of anime and enjoy the virtual space. Pika Pika can be loud. We hear her music when she moves, a sound which embodies Pika Pika's character. Sound is gendered because it emanates from her body movements. Pika Pika's body is at once a site and site of situated meanings and complexities, as Richard Leppert contends. Quote, sonoric landscapes are both heard and seen. They exist because if human experience and human consciousness, music, the part of the larger sonoric, sonoric landscape that interests me, connects to the visible human body, not only as the receiver of sound, but also as its agent or producer, the human embodiment of music is central to any understanding of music's sociocultural agency, end quote. As a wired Asian-American biracial woman, I enact resistance to passivity through sound intensity, wrapping the audience in Pika Pika's noisy articulations. I can appropriate space with my rambunctious noise, reach out and shake up the room visually and sonically. Pika Pika poses a crossfire of gender questions, Kristeva style, quote, by calling attention at all times to whatever remains unsatisfied, repressed, new, eccentric, incomprehensible, and disturbing to the status quo. End quote. Technology Pika Pika knows is her vehicle for existence, pleasure, and posing of somatic cyber potentials. There is pleasure in this enactment, immersed in the sonoric virtual space, the mapping of my body as Pika Pika Pika, ooh, as sound. Uh, and I really hope that you have an opportunity um, to stop by and meet her. <laughs> Tomorrow evening she'll um, appear at Taplin. Thank you very much. I don't know if we have time for questions, do we? Two minutes. Ten minutes? One question, two questions? If anyone has any, I'd be delighted. Please. Um, just to be clear with the video, Pika Pika, and the music that was being made, mm -hmm. um, what generated the first note? And was that first signal then processed through all the various different um, channels? Or was each subsequent?
triggering new signals? Um, for for Pika Pika, um, it's it's rather interesting because the sound comes out of her body speakers, but then I also have, or she has, I, I speak sort of in this he, she, I mean she and I thing, um, control over sending the her sound into the larger room also, so I can uh, play uh, sort of more solo and walk around the room, but also um, have her resound and incorporated into the sound space. Um, manipulating the sound, I can bring in a variety of, um, of different sounds that uh, on the fly um, with the speaker with the, with the sensors that are on, on my hands and sometimes on my feet. Uh, so I can bring in different sound worlds. Some of the um, sampled sounds are quite short, so I, I know already which ones are very short, and those are nice for s sort of smaller articulations of the hands and fingers and body. Longer sound files I can use for sort of longer phrases, but then I can manipulate them pitch-wise also by, uh, by my gesture. So uh, there's a variety of, of different... Uh, it's actually quite complex, different uh, vocabularies that, that she can bring in, that she, I can bring in. Yeah? And with that said, have you ever tried, um, do you have the only um, model of this technology, or have you tried doing a sort of call and response with somebody else? Um, I have never, or she has never <laughs> appeared with someone else as a, as a duet, although I, I shouldn't say that because she, she's appeared in a, in a lot of different places. I wonder if I have this um, here. Um, she's appeared in a lot of different places, and one of my most favorite stories is uh, outside of a Boston museum. She walked right outside, and, um, and a break dancer walked by, just happened to be walking by, uh, and she was walking around and making her sounds and coming out of her speakers. And uh, the break dancer related to this articulated movement and started making verbal, you know, beatbox kind of sounds and dancing with her, me. <laughs> and it was really a really wonderful experience to have these two robot-like characters on the, you know, confronting one another on the street of Boston. And then uh, he just, you know, went like this and then walked away. And that was the last I've seen of him. So that's the only duet I've ever done, actually. But it's possible. It is possible. Dan, maybe someday. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. If you have questions, certainly um, I'll be here the whole weekend. So, Thank you very much.